Welcome to Speak Up and Stay Alive Radio with author, speaker, and your host, Pat Rulo, serving you a generous helping of everything you need to know to help you and your loved ones stay safe during any doctor or hospital visit. The program is not intended to replace medical advice from a licensed professional, but rather to encourage you to become a well-informed participant in your health and well-being. And now, your host, Pat Rulo. I'm Pat Rulo, and welcome to my favorite time of the week, my time to share with you as much as I can fit into one show. And I've had an interesting few weeks that qualify as healthcare hazards, and I'll get to those firsthand encounters in a moment. But later in today's program, I have for the third time one of the most prestigious guests, the father of the patient safety movement, Dr. Lucian Leap here to answer a handful of email questions I received from our faithful listeners. And that would be you. It's quite an honor to have such a guest, so stay with me. In fact, I'll give you a moment to find your most comfy seat, kick off your shoes, unless of course you're driving, turn off that radiation-emitting cell phone. Yes, it does regularly emit high levels of radiation as it continually searches for a cell phone tower, which these days are sadly everywhere, but that's a conversation for another time. Now, it's time for the Healthcare Hazard of the Week. Oh, what a few weeks I've had. Normally, I don't have much opportunity to hang out at a doctor's office, but I've accompanied Bob to a few visits lately to help get his blood pressure under control. Let's start with Bob's encounters. While everyone was exceedingly friendly and kind, I must say, that the first and most consistent lapse in patient safety revolves around the lack of hand washing. No one washed hands, period. And now with electronic charting, there is a computer in every exam room. The preliminary nurse or aide on every occasion asked a bunch of questions and entered the answers into the computer. Never washed hands, never sanitized the keyboard, then proceeded to handle the blood pressure machine, wrap it around Bob's arm, enter the information into the keyboard, walk out of the room, re-enter, touch the doorknob, start typing, take another blood pressure reading, and all the while I'm yelling in my head, cross-contamination, people! Next, the doctor entered, did her exam, of course, didn't wash hands, and wrote prescriptions for all kinds of things, blood pressure medication, a painkiller in case you have pain, a pill for dizziness, a vitamin D supplement, which ultimately we did not fill except for the low-dose blood pressure medication, which is what we came in for. Yet now, Bob's medical record looks like he has all sorts of health issues when, in fact, he does not. And there was little mention of side effects and only when I asked, and after doing my own research, I clearly found that the painkiller negatively interacts with the blood pressure medication. When we went to the pharmacy to pick up the blood pressure meds, all four prescriptions were ready for pickup. Well, before we declined them, I asked the pharmacist about the painkiller and if it was not supposed to be taken with the blood pressure pill. She said, you know what? You're right. They should not be taken together. And then she wondered out loud and said, I wonder why this was not flagged by our computer system. <laughs> I walked out shaking my head. What if this happened to someone else other than me? 
What if the normal, everyday, trusting person just filled the prescriptions and took them? In this case, not only did the doctor not pay attention to this possible interaction, the pharmacist missed it, and so did the computer system we all love and put our faith into. This was a medical mishap waiting to happen, a near miss. And I ask, how often does this happen? How often do drug interactions create a new symptom, a new problem, a new diagnosis that calls for more medications, more tests, more money? When we got home, I called the doctor's office to have a conversation about this. The doctor was busy, but the nurse, or whoever it was answering the phone, was happy to relay my question to the doctor. Every 15 minutes, she would call back. I'll give her credit for reliability, and she would read a paragraph, obviously taken from some website, that addressed my questions. She actually said, here's a paragraph the doctor said I should read to you. Hello, can I please have a direct conversation with the doctor? Do I really have the time to spend two hours answering the phone just to receive a response that doesn't fully address my concerns? Do I really need a third party to read passages from the internet? And again, I wonder how many normal, everyday, trusting people are going to go through all of this. Not many. And this is how medical mistakes happen. Knowing this, I hope you too can learn from my experience. You must ask questions. You must not be immediately trusting. And I hate to say that, but especially when it comes to your medications, know what it is you are taking, know why you are taking it, know the side effects. And if you're taking more than one medication, never, ever take another without doing the research to find out if both medications play well with each other. Know when and how to take the medication. What time of day is most effective for that particular drug? Pharmaceutical drugs are powerful. They affect your body in many ways. Be mindful of what you pop into your mouth. And I also suggest that you make friends with your local pharmacist and always use the same pharmacy chain. I always say that your pharmacist is one of your best resources. They know drugs. That's their job. Every time you pick up a prescription, ask to have a short chat with your favorite pharmacist. In that way, he or she will come to know you and can be an ally, your safety net. I have several drug interaction checkers on our website. Just go to the speakupandstayalive.com website and check that out. Listen to Pat Rulo and Speak Up and Stay Alive Radio. Stay safe from little-known healthcare and hospital hazards. To learn more, go to speakupandstayalive.com. That's speakupandstayalive.com. Tired of the same old presentations? Can you forward to slide 38, please? Are you looking for a new, out-of-the-box topic for your next event? Want your group to leave inspired, informed, and satisfied? No PowerPoint presentations and dim lights here. No snoring or snoozing goes on during Pat's presentations. To help your entire group, organization, business, or church stay safe during any healthcare or hospital experience, invite Pat to speak. Visit her website, speakupandstayalive.com, or call Pat to discuss how she can make your next event fun, enlightening, and life-saving. Want testimonials? Go to the bulletin board link at the website for color pictures and comments from real people. Again, it's speakupandstayalive.com or call 440-725-5462. That's 440-725-5462.
hot, hot, hot. Bring the heat. And now, back to the show. I am your hostess, Pat Rulo, and right now, I have a treat for your ears. For all of you listeners who have spent 30 seconds within the patient safety world, you will certainly recognize today's guest. I am proud to share the air with Dr. Lucian Leap, the Harvard physician also considered the father of the modern patient safety movement. He is responsible for the eye-opening Institute of Medicine's report to Air is Human, the report that found that up to 98,000 Americans die every year from medical errors made in hospitals alone. He is also the chairman and the namesake for the Lucian Leap Institute at the National Patient Safety Foundation located in Boston, Massachusetts. I could go on and on, but we have so much to talk about. So welcome to our show, Dr. Leap. Well, it's nice to be here, Pat. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. You know, since this show is all about our listeners, I thought it would be appropriate to reach out to them and ask them to write and send their questions for you. So we sent a huge email blast, Facebook, Twitter, that your arrival, and we received well over 100 responses. So uh, unless you want to spend the entire day with us, we we categorize them and we have several for you today. So are you okay with that format? That's just fine. All right. All All right. right. No specific order. Legal Larry wrote, Pat, please ask Dr. Leap about his opinion on disclosure, apology, and resolution. Will it become mainstream anytime soon? Well, um, the simple answer is yes. Not soon enough, but sooner than I thought a few years ago. Uh, This is about transparency. This is about patients having a right to know what's going on. It has to do with honesty and openness. And uh, so it's very fundamental. Certainly, a patient has a right to know everything. When something goes wrong or when something goes right, they have a right to know what's going on and what's happened. We think it's absolutely essential if, if upon investigation, you find that uh, the injury has been caused by a mistake. Uh, we think it's absolutely essential that uh, we apologize. Uh, apologize meaning taking responsibility and saying, you know, we made a mistake, it's our fault, and we really feel bad about it. Uh, that is the first step in terms of the patient beginning to get over. It's also the first step in terms of the physician and nurse being able to deal with it. Uh, Part of that has to be compensation for whatever costs there are, Uh, and that is something that clearly needs to be built in so that there's something awful when a patient has to sue in order to get compensated for the cost of an injury that we've caused. Uh, We came out for this um, 15 years ago saying that patients should be compensated for all injuries, it's begun to happen. We finally turned the corner. Mm-hmm. For 100 years, the, the attorneys have told the doctors, never admit you've made a mistake. Don't apologize, because if you do, the patient will sue you. That was bad advice from an ethical standpoint. It was also bad advice from a practical standpoint, because it's really the other way around. The major reason people sue is because people haven't been honest with them. Absolutely. And, uh, and we, we now have evidence that that's true. There's now, there are now enough places where people are being treated the way they should be treated, honestly and openly, where apologies are being given, where compensation is being given without people having to sue. And it turns out when you do that, you dramatically reduce the number of suits, you dramatically improve the the way people feel about the hospital, and you dramatically improve how the physicians and everyone else feel. So it's a win-win-win, and uh, I think that's finally become obvious, and uh, we're on our way. And I I think that... um, 
within the next five years, we'll see a significant increase in the number of hospitals that are, that are doing right by patients. And within 10 years, I think it'll be the norm. I'm sorry it won't be tomorrow, but it, we're started. We're started. It's going in that direction. The malpractice system, most of the money doesn't go to patients. It goes to the lawyers. Absolutely. And, uh, and uh, when you have direct compensation, uh, you don't have to pay millions of dollars to people. You just pay the, what the costs really are, and everybody benefits from that. Right, and it doesn't take three or five years. Right. Yeah. Another important thing. Absolutely. Great conversation on that. Thank you. All right. Piper K. wrote, what about hospital patient safety scores? There's so many to sort through on the Internet, typically without a validation of their methodology or data. How does a patient determine what is accurate and what should a patient look for to ensure a reliable conclusion? Well, I think the answer is that it ain't easy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is a big problem. The core of the problem is that we don't really have adequate measures. We can measure various parts of safety but there's no overall measure that, that covers enough and does it reliably so that we really know what we're talking about. Right now, there aren't enough good measures. The Joint Commission, I think, is highly reliable. The Joint Commission just checks on hospitals every couple of years, so it doesn't give you up-to-date current information, and it, doesn't, it just checks on a few things. It, it doesn't attempt to make an overall safety score. The LeapFrog Group does that, I uh, worked with them a bit, helping them on this, and, and they now come out with a score. They are uh, an organization set up by the, uh, the, the large corporations who want to have some, um, some understanding of what they were getting for their insurance money. And uh, they've spent a lot of time on this, and they now rate hospitals. And as you can imagine, if a hospital doesn't get an A rating, they then say, well, the system isn't any good right. for measurement. Right. But uh, the fact of the matter is that the, their system is probably the best that we have at the present time, and uh, I think it can be it can be trusted. And the proof of that will be that you can bet your bottom dollar that hospitals that get a get a C on a leapfrog rating one year will 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 bring that up the next year. They'll do whatever it takes to uh, to improve. So I think the the measurement uh, is imperfect, but we've got some, and uh, and it's going to make a difference. Do you know offhand what the website address is for leapfrog? Is it leapfrog.org? I think so, but okay. I'm terrible at that sort of thing. Okay, yeah, it's, it's hard to remember all those. Well, things. I'm sure you Google LeapFrog. You uh, get okay, that's what I want my listeners to do, to Google LeapFrog and go to that website, because that lists the hospital ratings, correct? That's correct. Good. All right, Bob, a son of a parent who died of a medical error, wrote, Medicare does not pay for additional costs associated with many preventable errors, including those, he calls them never events, as a way to encourage hospitals to shape up. For example... A never event is a wrong site surgery that Medicare will not cover. However, if after a wrong site surgery, the patient develops other complications as a direct cause from the wrong site surgery, does Medicare cover that? And if so, now the hospital continues to make revenue on the error. Well, he's absolutely right. If you have uh, bypass surgery and the hospital bills uh, Medicare $100,000 or whatever, some horrible amount, uh, they get paid for that. They just don't get paid for care of the complication afterwards caused by an error. I think it was a fundamental uh, mistake. Um, we, we did the same thing in Massachusetts. Actually, we started doing this before Medicare did, and at the time the legislation was put in place, I testified saying that I thought that if there was a, a mistake, that you should not pay for any of the hospitalization whatsoever. But in their wisdom, the legislature decided not to do that. 
we even have another step here, which is really foolish, and that is they don't get paid unless they can prove that uh, it was not preventable. And so what happens, instead of this being an incentive for improvement, it's an incentive for trying to find out how you can prove that you were okay. And um, so that works in a perverse way. Bottom line is I agree with him completely. I think they shouldn't pay for it at all. That's a huge step. Yeah, well, the problem is, uh, the other part is that the never events really are, as the name suggests, fairly rare. Mm -hmm. So the the financial implications from this are fairly trivial. Sure, it wouldn't be Uh, too huge. Yeah, I mean, no hospital has very many, and it doesn't hit their bottom line if you pay them nothing. Mm -hmm. We've got to do more than this. This is just a a token thing. Right, right. Wow, because I'm sure we could go on and on and on. So where do we go from here? And What are your suggestions to improve patient safety today? Well, I think there's two, two aspects of that, and that is what should we be doing in the medical establishment, and the other is what can patients do. Right. And the answer is we should be doing everything. I mean, we should be changing our culture. We should be implementing our safe practices. We should, we should, we, every hospital now has a patient safety officer. Most hospitals have active safety programs, but we need to do a lot more. And, and the agenda is big, and people know it, and uh, it's really a matter of, of getting on with it. In terms of um, what patients can do, I think patients can do a lot more. Um, one is to to put pressure um, on sort of every different aspect of the system. I'm, in essence, politicize it in a sense. That is, uh, boards of trustees ought to know uh, that there's a problem in their hospital. I think patients should speak up, should write, should organize, um, and um, whenever things are not right... Let everybody know about it. Let the physician know, let the hospital know, let the board know. In Massachusetts, we now have patient advisory councils required for every hospital. So patients do have a voice, and they have a, they have a mechanism for making their, their wishes known. I think uh, every, every uh, hospital ought to have a patient advisory board. They ought to be more than an advisory board. They ought to be part of the participation in, in the hospital activities. And, and patients should push for that. And I think it's uh, important to, uh, to speak up is the main thing. And I think one of the, one of the most striking things is that we may have 98,000 people die from medical errors, but we don't have 98,000 complaints about it. Interesting. And we really need to have more public uh, outrage and say it's time to, uh, to stop this and do what, what needs to be done. And I'd, I'd really welcome that. As things come along to you that you think our listeners should know about, please feel free to stay connected to me, and I will pass the word on that way. Sounds wonderful. Yeah. Dr. Leap, it has been a pleasure and an honor, obviously, to have you with us today. I thank you for taking the time to answer our listeners' questions, and you are welcome on this show anytime. Well, thank you, Pat, and thank you for all you're doing to help make the health care safer. We really appreciate it. So, doctor, I have what? Wait, can you repeat that? How is that spelled? Wait, I can't understand what you're saying. Well, don't get upset. I just don't know what those words mean. Can you slow down, please? I still don't understand. I have more questions, please. 
Can you stop typing into your computer and look at me? So what's the treatment? Did you say three times a day? Please hear me. I don't understand. Oh, well, that was crazy. Or maybe not. Does your doctor sound like that to you? And if so, it's not your fault that you don't understand. So let's talk about health literacy. One of the official definitions is this. The Department of Health and Human Services defines health literacy as the degree to which individuals have the capacity to obtain, process, and understand basic health information needed to make appropriate health decisions and get services needed to prevent or treat illness. Now, just take that definition, for example. I find that hard to understand. The degree to which individuals have the capacity to obtain. Well, that's a mouthful that, quite frankly, has too many words in it. Degree, capacity, obtain. So there we have it. Even the official definition is confusing. And what is scary about this is that the strongest predictor of a person's health is health literacy. According to the National Patient Safety Foundation, they say that nothing, not age, income, employment status, educational level, and racial or ethnic group affects health status more than literacy skills. Now, some definitions are easier, like Health literacy is the ability to understand and act on information. Well, that's better, but it still implies that it's the patient's problem. Ah, he doesn't have the ability to understand what I'm saying. She doesn't have the skills necessary to act on her health information. In fact, most articles and papers you find that discuss health literacy promote that same line of thinking. They say that those at risk include older adults, minority groups, people with less than a high school education, those who speak English as a second language, and lower-income individuals. Those with poor health literacy are more likely to have a chronic disease and less likely to get the health care they need. Emergency room patients with inadequate literacy are twice as likely to be hospitalized as those with adequate literacy. Don't know what adequate means. And I say, maybe it's because physicians often do a poor job at assessing a patient's health literacy. Most everyone has the ability to understand something if it is explained slowly, with care, using words that the provider determines through thoughtful evaluation that the patient can comprehend, and then asking the patient to repeat, to teach back, so to speak, so that the provider can truly see and hear that the patient understands. And this takes time time that many providers simply do not have or are not willing to have with you. So in my mind, health literacy is a problem that originates at the source, the doctor's office, the hospital, the emergency room. For example, I read an elderly woman sent home from the hospital develops MRSA at the surgical site because she doesn't understand the warning signs listed in the discharge instructions. Another doesn't understand how to fill out the health history questionnaire at her doctor's office and checks no to every question because she doesn't understand what is being asked or how to check the columns. A young mother, instructed to give her child a dropper full of medication, doesn't know how big of a dropper to use and over-medicates her child. And I read of a man in his 70s preparing for his first colonoscopy who used a suppository as directed but without removing it from the foil packet. Ouch. Well, 
My mom went to the doctor's office for an oxygen test, and the nurse demanded, Did you bring your cannula? Did we bring what? A cannula? A cannula of olives? A cannula of pasta sauce? Well, luckily, we knew that a cannula is the plastic tube that is inserted in your nose when using oxygen. But if we didn't know this, how stupid would we have felt? Then, to add to that, when my mom replied, no, I didn't bring it because I didn't know that I was supposed to, as I didn't know what the test entailed, the nurse barked in her face, well, these things aren't free, you know. Whoa, that type of behavior can shut down even the most health-literate patient. When rudeness or arrogance enters the equation, you don't have to have low literacy to feel intimidated, shame, confusion, irritation, embarrassment, and fear. Oh, and what about the poor guy named Chuck? Good old Chuck had an earache and went to see his doctor. The doctor took a look and announced, No problem, just a slight infection. We have something for that. My nurse Susie will be in with something for you. If it still hurts in two weeks, call my office and schedule a follow-up. Goodbye. And out the door he goes. Fifteen minutes later, Nurse Susie walks in and says to Chuck, Here's a gown. Take off your pants and put the gown on with the opening in the back and I'll return in a moment. Chuck's eyes open wide. What? Nurse Susie sighs and with a slight irritation repeats herself. Here's the gown. Take off your pants and put the gown on with the opening in the back and I'll return in a moment. Chuck stammers, but but I, 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 don't, I don't understand. Why do I need to remove my pants? Nurse Susie pulls out a piece of paper from her pocket and shows Chuck. Look here. The doctor wrote, administer four drops in the rear. Chuck makes a face and says, but I have an earache. Oh, no, says Nurse Susie. Perhaps it's the doctor's sloppy handwriting. He must have used the letter R as an abbreviation for the word right and meant four drops in the right ear, not rear. Oh, now this is what I call a near miss or a rear miss. Chuck allowed his doctor to walk out without explaining what was wrong, what the treatment would be, how it was to be done, no questions or answers about the side effects, nothing. Now, much as I think it is the provider who is largely responsible for the health literacy experience and outcome of each patient, I know that we as patients cannot and should not sit back and say, hey, doc, do your thing. It's all on you. Health literacy is the responsibility of everyone, not just the care providers. So what can you do? Well, first, don't be like Chuck. Ask questions. Bring a list of questions with you to your doctor's appointment. Bring a family member or a friend or an advocate with you to every appointment. Bring a piece of paper and a pencil or pen, tape recorder or, or another taping device in order to review every conversation during the medical encounter. Ask your doctor or nurse to speak slowly. Use simple terms. Repeat and maybe draw a picture to explain a medical condition or if you need surgery. Don't pretend that you understand when you don't. Well, I think we all do that, don't we? Just say, stop. Please explain that to me. And if you feel you need more time, ask to schedule another visit. Or ask if there's a nurse or assistant who can answer your questions. But do not go home without your questions answered. Ask for a copy of all lab and test results in your doctor's notes so that you can review those in the privacy and the quietness of your own home at your own pace. You do have a right to these copies. And here's one. Medications and health literacy is a dangerous intersection. Millions of people are injured or die from medication errors. 
Side effects from medications can diminish the quality of life if not understood and managed. Know what it is that you take. Know the side effects. Double check your pills when you pick them up from the pharmacy. Ask if there are other medication choices. Bottom line with medications, know what you're taking and why, for how long, what to look out for. I really cannot stress this one enough. And here's another quick one. We talked about this way back last year. There's a simple program called Ask Me Three that provides you with three simple questions to ask your doctor. The first is, what is my main problem? The second, what do I need to do? And the third, why is it important for me to do this? That's easy. That's what Chuck should have done. Should have asked, what is my main problem? What do I need to do? Why is it important for me to do this, among others? And finally, I suggest, listen to this radio show each week, as I know you do. It's an easy way to get you to think about the many issues that surround your health and health care. And get a copy of my book. And no, it's not a plug, but it's a resource. It's full of many hazards that the average patient runs into every day, and it's easy to read. Now, one of the advantages of working toward being as health literate as possible is that it puts you in a position to promote your own care. And it allows you what is called veto power that gives you the knowledge and comfort to say no to care or treatment that you may not need. Because remember, you are in charge of you. No one knows you or your body better than you do. And remember, there's no such thing as a stupid question. As they say, the only stupid question is the one you don't ask. And as I say, if you don't understand what someone says to you or cannot decipher a form or discharge instructions, that is not your fault. No one is fully health literate. It's simply impossible. So ask and keep asking until you are happily informed. Once again, I refer to the name of this radio program, Speak Up and Stay Alive. It's so true and really quite easy to do. Don't be a chuck ask questions. You have to speak up and stay alive. So doctor, I have what? Wait, can you repeat that? How is that spelled? Wait, I can't understand what you're saying. Well, don't get upset. I just don't know what those words mean. Can you slow down, please? I still don't understand. I, I have more questions, please. Can you stop typing into your computer and look at me? So what's the treatment? Did you say three times a day? Please hear me. I don't understand. Hi there, I'm Gina Murphy-Darling, the voice of Mrs. Green on the airwaves. Mrs. Green's world is a global movement of ideas and actions made up of people who care about their own health and the health of this planet. If you're interested in things like clean water, clean air, clean oceans, or would like to know more about just what it means to live a sustainable life, you will love to hear what our guests from all over the world have to say. Please visit our website at mrsgreensworld.com to learn more and to become a part of our world. Well, there you have it. Lots to think about and plenty to share with others. 
And to do so, simply head over to the website, speakupandstayalive.com, where you can listen to today's show again and hear previous episodes all under the Radio Archives button. And while you're there, visit the shop page to get a copy of the life-saving book, Speak Up and Stay Alive, Your Hospital Survival Guide. And if you just need more of me, invite me to speak to your group, club, church, business, or hospital. My presentations are fun, fast-paced, informative, and life-saving. Visit speakupandstayalive.com for more information. Email me at pat at speakupandstayalive.com or call me and leave a message on the radio studio line, 440-725-5462. That is 440-725-5462. Well, that is it for today. Until next time, I hope you have a healthy and a happy week. I am Pat Rulo, and I am the voice for Informed Choice.